Four, magician. When the night lork sagged to the ground, dropping Sia in the process, I nearly fell with them. I had no idea why I was still alive. The tales of the Aramary weapons are full of them slaughtering whole armies. There are no stories of crazed barbarian girls fighting back. Sia, to my great relief, immediately pushed himself up on his elbows. He seemed fine, though his eyes went very round at the sight of Nahadoth's motionless form. Look what you did! I... I, I was shaking, almost too hard to talk. I, I didn't mean... He was killing you. I couldn't... I swallowed hard. Let him? Nahadoth would not have killed Sia, said a new voice behind me. My nerves did not like this. I jumped and grabbed for the knife that was no longer tucked into my back sheath. A woman resolved out of the silent drift of Sia's toys. The first thing I noticed was that she was huge, like the great sea ships of the Ken. She was built like one of those ships, too, broad and powerful and astonishingly graceful. None of it was fat. I could not guess her race, because no woman of any race I knew was that damn big. She knelt to help Sia up. Sia was shaking, too, though with excitement. Did you see what she did? He asked the newcomer. He pointed at Nahadoth. He was grinning. Yes, I saw setting Sia on his feet. The woman turned to regard me for a moment. Kneeling, she was taller than Sia standing. Her clothing was simple, gray tunic and pants, a gray kerchief covering her hair. Maybe it was her grayness after the unrelenting black of the night lord, but there was something about her that seemed fundamentally gentle to me. There is no greater warrior than a mother protecting her child, the woman said. But Sia is far less fragile than you, Lady Yena. I nodded slowly, not allowing myself to feel foolish. Logic had not been part of what I'd done. Sia came over and took my hand. Thank you anyway, he said shyly. The purpled, ugly handprint around his throat was fading even as I watched. We all looked over at Nahadoth. He sat on his knees as he had fallen, the knife still hilt deep in his chest, his head slumped. With a soft sigh, the gray woman went to him and pulled the knife out. I had felt it lodge in bone, but she made the withdrawal look easy. She examined it, shook her head, then offered it to me, hilt first. I made myself take it, getting more God's blood on my hand. I thought that she held the blade more firmly than necessary because my hand was shaking so badly. But as I got a better grip on the hilt, the woman's fingers trailed down the blade. When I had the knife again, I realized that not only was it clean of blood, but it was a different shape, curved now, and finely honed. That suits you better, said the woman, giving a solemn nod at my stare. Unthinking, I put the knife into its sheath at the small of my back, though it should no longer have fit. It did. The sheath had changed, too. So, Jaka, you like her. Sia leaned against me, wrapping his arms around my waist and resting his head on my breast. Immortal or not, there was such innocence in the way he did it that I did not push him away. I put my arm around him without thinking 
and he uttered a deep, contented sigh. Yes, said the woman without prevarication. She leaned forward, peering into Nahadoth's face. Father? I did not jump, not with Sia leaning against me, but he felt me stiffen. Shh, he said, rubbing my back. That touch was not quite childlike enough to be truly soothing. A moment later, Nahadoth stirred. You're back, said Sia, straightening with a bright smile. I took that opportunity to step away from Nahadoth. Sia caught my hand quickly, all earnestness. It's all right, Yena. He's different now. You're safe. She will not believe you, said Nahadoth. He sounded like a man waking from a deep sleep. She will not trust us now. It isn't your fault, Sia sounded unhappy. We just need to explain, and she'll understand. Nahadoth looked at me, which made me jump again. Though it seemed the madness was indeed gone, nor did I see that other look when he'd held my hand in his heartblood and whispered soft, longing words. And that kiss? No, I had imagined it. That was clear as the night lord who sat before me now was detached, regal even on his knees, and contemptuous. I was reminded painfully of Dakarta. Will you understand? he asked me. I could not help taking another step back in answer. Nahadoth shook his head and rose, nodding gracefully to the woman Sia had called Jaka. Though Jaka towered over Nahadoth, there was no question which was the superior and which the subordinate. We have no time for this, Nahadoth said. Varane will be looking for her. Mark her and be done with it. Jaka nodded and came toward me. I stepped back a third time unnerved by the intent in her eyes. Sia let me go and stood between us, a flea confronting a dog. He barely came up to Jaka's waist. This isn't the way we were supposed to do it. We agreed to try and win her over. That isn't possible now, said Nahadoth. What's to stop her from telling Varane about this then? Sia put his hands on his hips. Jaka had stopped waiting patiently for the dispute to be resolved. I felt forgotten and supremely unimportant, as I probably should, given that I stood in the presence of three gods. The term former gods just didn't seem to fit. Nahadoth's face showed something less than a smile. He glanced at me. Tell Varane and we'll kill you. His gaze returned to Sia. Satisfied? I must have been tired. After so many threats that evening... I didn't even flinch. Sia frowned and shook his head, but he stepped out of Jaka's path. This wasn't what we'd planned, he said with a hint of petulance. Plans change, said Jaka. Then she stood before me. What are you going to do? I asked. Somehow, despite her size, she did not frighten me near as much as Nahadoth. I will mark your brow with a sigil, she said one that cannot be seen. It will interfere with the sigil Varane intends to put on you. You will look like one of them, but in truth, you will be free. Are they? All the sigil marked Aramary. Was that who she meant? Not free? No more than we, for all they think otherwise, said Nahadoth. 
There was, for just that moment, a hint of the softness in him that I'd seen before. Then he turned away. Hurry up. Jaca nodded and touched my forehead with the tip of a finger. Her fists were the size of dinner plates. Her finger seemed to sear like a brand when it touched me. I cried out and tried to slap her finger away, but she lifted her hand before I could. She was done. Sia, his sulk forgotten, peered at the spot and nodded sagely. That will do. Take her to Varane, then, said Jaca. She inclined her head to me in courteous farewell, then turned away to join Nahadoth. Sia took my hand. I was so confused and shaken that I did not fight when he led me toward the nearest of the dead space's walls. But I did glance back over my shoulder once to watch the Night Lord walk away. My mother was the most beautiful woman in the world. I say that not because I am her daughter and not because she was tall and graceful with hair like clouded sunlight. I say it because she was strong. Perhaps it is my Dare heritage, but strength has always been the marker of beauty in my eyes. My people were not kind to her. No one said it in front of my father, but I heard the murmurs when we walked through Arabaya sometimes. Amin whore, bone-white bitch. They would spit on the ground after she passed to wash the streets of her Aramary taint. Through all of this, she maintained her dignity and was never less than polite to people who were anything but. My father, and one of the few clear memories of him that I have, said this made her better than them. I am not sure why I remember this now, but I am certain it is somehow important. Sia made me run after we left the dead space, so that I would be out of breath when we arrived at Varane's workshop. Lorraine opened the door after Sia's third impatient knock, looking irritated. The white-haired man from Descartes' audience, who had judged me not hopeless. Sia, what in demons? Oh. He looked at me and raised his eyebrows. Yes, I'd rather thought Tivril was taking too long. The sun went down nearly an hour ago. Samina sick Naha honor, said Sia. Then he looked up at me. But the game was to end if you made it here, right? You're safe now. This was my explanation, then. That was what Tavril said. I glanced back down the hall as if I was still afraid. It was not difficult to pretend. Samina would have given him specific parameters, Varane said, which I suppose was meant to reassure me. She knows what he's like in that state. Come in, Lady Yena. He stepped aside and I entered the chamber. Even if I hadn't been bone-tired, I would have stopped there, for I stood in a room like nothing I had ever seen. It was long and oval-shaped, and there were floor-to-ceiling windows down both of the longer walls. Twin rows of workbenches had been placed along either side of the room. I saw books, flasks, and incomprehensible contraptions on each. Along the far wall were cages— some containing rabbits and birds. In the center of the chamber was a huge white orb set on a low plinth. It was as tall as me and completely opaque. Over here, Varane said, heading toward one of the workbenches. 
two stools sat in front of it. He chose one of them and then patted the other for me. I followed him, but then hesitated. I'm afraid you have the advantage of me, sir. He looked surprised, then smiled, and gave me an informal, not quite mocking half-bow. Ah, yes, manners. I am Varane, the palace scrivener, also a relative of yours in some way or another, too distant and convoluted to determine, though Lord Decarta has seen fit to welcome me into the central family. He tapped the black circle on his forehead. Scriveners, Amun scholars who made a study of the god's written language. This Scrivener did not look like the cold-eyed ascetics I'd imagined. He was younger, for one, perhaps a few years younger than my mother had been. Certainly not old enough for such stark white hair. Perhaps he was like Tyrrell and I, part Amun, of a more exotic variety. A pleasure, I said though I cannot help but wonder why the palace needs a Scrivener. Why study the god's power when you have actual gods right here? He looked pleased by my question. Perhaps few people asked him about his work. Well, for one thing, they can't do everything or be everywhere. There are hundreds of people in this palace using small magics on an everyday basis. If we had to stop and call an Enenfada every time we needed something... Very little would get done. The lift, for example, that carried you to this level of the palace, the air this far above the ground, it would ordinarily be thin and cold, hard to breathe. Magic keeps the palace comfortable. I sat down carefully on one of the stools, eyeing the bench beside me. The items there were laid out neatly, various fine paintbrushes, a dish of ink, and a small block of polished stone. Incised on its face with a strange, complicated character of spikes and curlicues. The character was so fundamentally alien, so jarring to the eye, that I could not look at it long. The urge to look away was part of what it was, because it was God's language, a sigil. Varane sat opposite me while Sia, unbidden, claimed a seat across the bench and rested his chin on his folded arms. For another thing, Varane continued, there are certain magics that even the Enafada cannot perform. Gods are peculiar beings, incredibly powerful within their sphere of influence, so to speak, but limited beyond that. Nahadoth is powerless by day. Sia cannot be quiet and well-behaved unless he's up to something. He eyed Sia, who gave us both an innocent smile. In many ways, we mortals are more... Versatile, for lack of a better term. More complete. For example, none of them can create or extend life. The simple act of having children, something any unlucky barmaid or careless soldier can do, is a power that has been lost to the gods for millennia. From the corner of my eye, I saw Sia's smile fade. Extend life? I had heard rumors of what some Scriveners did with their powers. Terrible, foul rumors. It occurred to me suddenly that my grandfather was very, very old. Varane nodded, his eyes twinkling at the disapproval in my tone. It is the great quest of our profession. Someday we might even achieve immortality. 
He read the horror in my face and smiled, though that goal is not without controversy. My grandmother had always said the Amen were unnatural people. I looked away. Tavril said you were going to mark me. He grinned, openly amused now, laughing at the prudish savage. Mm-hmm. What does this mark do? Keeps the Enifada from killing you, among other things. You've seen what they can be like. I licked my lips. Ah, uh, yes, I didn't know they were... I gestured vaguely, unsure how to say what I meant without offending Sia. Running around loose? Sia asked brightly. There was a wicked look in his eye. He was enjoying my discomfiture. I winced. Yes. Mortal form is their prison, Varane said, ignoring Sia. And every soul in Sky, their jailer. They are bound by Brighty Tempest to serve the descendants of Shahar Aramari, his greatest priestess. But since Shahar's descendants now number in the thousands, he gestured toward the windows as if the whole world was one clan, or perhaps he simply meant Sky, the only world that mattered to him. Our ancestors chose to impose a more orderly structure on the situation. The Mark confirms for the Enenfada that you are Aramari. Without it, they will not obey you. It also specifies your rank within the family. How close you are to the main line of descent, I mean, which in turn dictates how much power you have to command them. He picked up a brush, though he did not dip it in the ink. Instead, he reached up to my face, pushing my hair back from my forehead. My heart clenched as he examined me. Clearly, Varane was some sort of expert. Could he truly not see Jacques's mark? For an instant, I thought he had, because his eyes flicked down to hold mine for half a breath. But apparently, the gods had done their work well, because after a moment, Varane let my hair go and began to stir the ink. Tavril said the mark was permanent, I said, mostly to quell my nervousness. The black liquid looked like simple writing ink, though the sigil-marked block was clearly no ordinary ink stone. Unless Descartes orders it removed, yes. Like a tattoo, though painless. You'll get used to it. I was not fond of a permanent mark, though I knew better than to protest. To distract myself, I asked, Why do you call them Inafada? The look that crossed Varane's face was fleeting, but I recognized it by instinct, calculation. I had just revealed some stunning bit of ignorance to him, and he meant to use it. Casually, Varane jabbed a thumb at Sia, who was surreptitiously eyeing the items on Varane's work table. It's what they call themselves. We just find the label convenient. Why not? We don't call them gods, Varane smiled faintly. That would be an offense to the Skyfather, our only true god, and those of the Skyfather's children who stayed loyal. But we can't call them slaves either. After all, we outlawed slavery centuries ago. This was the sort of thing that made people hate the Aramari, truly hate them, not just resent their power or their willingness to use it. They found so many ways to lie about the things they did, 
it mocked the suffering of their victims. Why not just call them what they are? I asked. Weapons. Sia glanced at me, his gaze too neutral to be a child's in that instant. Varane winced delicately. Spoken like a true barbarian, he said, and though he smiled, that did nothing to alleviate the insult. The thing you must understand, Lady Yena, is that like our ancestress Shahar, we Aramari are first and foremost the servants of Etempest Skyfather. It is in his name that we have imposed the age of the bright upon the world. Peace, order, enlightenment. He spread his hands. Etempest's servants do not use or need weapons. Tools, though. I had heard enough. I had no idea of his rank relative to mine, but I was tired and confused and far from home, and if barbarians' manners would serve better to get me through this day, then so be it. Does Enifada mean tool, then? I demanded, or is it just slave in another tongue? It means we who remember Enifa, said Sia. He had propped his chin on his fist. The items on Varane's workbench looked the same, but I was certain he had done something to them. She was the one murdered by a tempest long ago. We went to war with him to avenge her. Enifa. The priest never said her name. The betrayer, I murmured without a thought. She betrayed no one, Sia snapped. Varane's glance at Sia was heavy-lidded and unreadable. True. A whore's business can hardly be termed a betrayal, can it? Sia hissed. For an eye-blink, there was something inhuman about his face, something sharp and feral. And then he was a boy again, sliding off the stool and trembling with fury. For a moment, I half expected him to poke out his tongue, but the hatred in his eyes was too old for that. I will laugh when you're dead, he said softly. The small hairs along my skin prickled, for his voice was a grown man's now, tenor, malevolence. I will claim your heart as a toy and kick it for a hundred years, and when I am finally free, I will hunt down all your descendants and make their children just like me. With that, he vanished. I blinked, Varane sighed. And that, Lady Yena, is why we use the blood sigils, he said. Silly as that threat was, he meant every word of it. The sigil prevents him from carrying it out, yet even that protection is limited. A higher-ranking Aramary's order, or stupidity on your part, could leave you vulnerable. I frowned remembering the moment when Tavril had urged me to get to Varane. Only a full blood can command him off now. And Tavril was a... what had he called it? A half-blood. Stupidity on my part? I asked. Varane gave me a hard look. They must respond to any imperative statement you make, lady. Consider how many such statements we make carelessly or figuratively, with no thought given to other interpretations. When I frowned in thought, he rolled his eyes. 
The common folk are fond of saying, To the hells with you. Ever said it to yourself in a moment of anger? At my slow nod, he leaned closer. The subject of the phrase is implied, of course. We usually mean, you should go. But the phrase could also be understood as, I want to go, and you will take me. He paused to see if I understood. I did. At my shudder, he nodded and sat back. Just don't talk to them unless you have to, he said. Now, shall we? He reached for the ink dish and cursed as it toppled the instant his fingers touched it. Sia had somehow lodged a brush underneath. The ink splattered across the tabletop like... Like... And then Varane touched my hand. Lady Yena, are you all right? That was how it happened, yes, the first time. I blinked. What? He smiled, all condescending kindness again. Been a hard day, has it? Well, this won't take long. He cleaned up the ink spill. There was enough left in the dish that apparently he could continue. If you could hold your hair back for me. I didn't move. Why did Grandfather Descartes do this, Scrivener Varane? Why did he bring me here? He raised his eyebrows as if surprised that I would even ask. I'm not privy to his thoughts. I have no idea. Is he senile? He groaned. You really are a savage. No, he isn't senile. Then why? I just told you. If he wanted to kill me, he could have simply had me executed, trump up an excuse if he even bothered, or... He could have done what he did to my mother, an assassin in the night, poison in my sleep. I had finally surprised him. He grew very still, his eyes meeting mine and then flicking away. I would not confront Descartes with the evidence if I were you. At least he hadn't tried to deny it. I hardly needed evidence. A healthy woman in her forties doesn't die in her sleep. But I had her body searched by the physician. There was a mark, a small puncture on her forehead, on the... I trailed off for a moment, suddenly understanding something I'd never questioned in my life. On the scar she had right here. I touched my own forehead, where my era Mary sigil would be. Varane faced me full on now, quiet and serious. If an era Mary assassin left a mark that could be seen... And if you expected to see it, then, Lady Yena, you understand more of Descartes' intentions than any of us. Why do you think he brought you here? I shook my head slowly. All along the journey to Skye, I'd suspected. Descartes was angry at my mother, hated my father. There could be no good reason for his invitation. In the back of my mind, I'd expected to be executed at best, perhaps tortured first, maybe on the steps of the salon. My grandmother had been afraid for me. If there'd been any hope of escape, I think she would have urged me to run. But one does not run from the Aramari, and a Dare woman does not run from revenge. This mark, I said at last, it will help me survive this place? Yes. 
The Inafada won't be able to hurt you unless you do something stupid. As for Samina, Rilad, and other dangers, he shrugged. Well, magic can only do so much. I closed my eyes and traced my mother's face against my memory for the ten thousandth time. She had died with tears on her cheeks, perhaps knowing what I would face. Then, let's begin, I said. Five. Chaos. That night as I slept, I dreamt of him. It is an ugly storm cloud choked night. Above the clouds, the sky is lightning with the approach of dawn. Below the clouds, this has made absolutely no difference in the battlefield's illumination. A thousand torches burning amid a hundred thousand soldiers are more than enough light. The capital, too, is a gentle radiance nearby. It is not the sky that I know. This city sprawls across a floodplain rather than over a hill, and the palace is embedded at its heart, not hovering overhead. I am not me. A respectable force, says Jaka, beside me. Jakarn I know now, goddess of battle and bloodshed. In place of her usual headscarf is a helm that fits her head almost as closely. She wears shining silver armor, its surface a glory of engraved sigils and incomprehensible designs that glow red as if hot. There is a message written in the god's words there. Memories I should not possess tease me with its meaning, though in the end they fail. Yes, I say, and my voice is male, though high-pitched and nasal. I know myself to be Aramary. I feel myself to be powerful. I am the family head. I would have been offended if they had come with even one soldier less. Then since you are not offended, perhaps you can parley with them, says a woman beside me. She is sternly beautiful. Her hair is the color of bronze, and a pair of enormous wings feathered in gold, silver and platinum are folded on her back. Kurue, called wise. I feel arrogance. Parley? They're not worth the time. I do not think I like this other me. What then? I turn to look at the ones behind me. Sia sits cross-legged on his floating yellow ball. He has propped his chin on his fist. He is bored. Beyond Sia lurks a smoking pent presence. I had not noticed this one move behind me. He watches me as if he has been imagining my death. I make myself smile, unwilling to reveal how he unnerves me. Well, Nahadoth, how long has it been since you had any fun? I have surprised him. It gratifies me to realize that I can. An eagerness fills his face that is chilling to behold. But I have given no command, and so he waits. The others are surprised, too, less pleasantly. Sia straightens and glares at me. Are you out of your mind? Kurue is more diplomatic. That is unnecessary, Lord Hakir. Jacarn or even I can take care of this army. Or me, says Sia, stung. I look at Nahadoth and consider how the stories will go when word spreads that I unleash the Night Lord on those who dare to challenge me. He is the most powerful of my weapons, yet... I have never witnessed any significant display of his capabilities. I am curious. Nahadoth, I say. 
His stillness and the power I have over him are thrilling, but I know how to keep my head. I have heard the stories passed down from previous family heads. It is important to give just the right instructions. He thinks in loopholes. Go on to the battlefield and dispose of this army. Do not allow them to advance on this position or sky. Do not allow survivors to escape. I almost forget but quickly add, and do not kill me in the process. Is that all? he asks. Yes, he smiles. As you wish. You are a fool, says Kurue, abandoning politeness. The other me ignores her. Keep him safe, says Nahadoth to his children. He is still smiling as he walks onto the battlefield. The enemy are so numerous that I cannot see the end of them. As Nahadoth walks toward their front line, he seems tiny, helpless, human. I can hear, echoing across the flat expanse of the plain, some among their soldiers laughing. The commanders at the center of the line are silent. They know what he is. Nahadoth holds his hands out from his sides, and a great curved sword appears in each. He runs at the line, a black streak, and pierces it like an arrow. Shields split, armor and sword shatter, body parts fly. The enemy dies by the dozen. I clap and laugh. What a marvelous show! Around me, the other Enafada are tense and afraid. Nahadoth cuts a swath through the army until he reaches its general center. No one can stand against him. When he finally stops, having carved a circle of death round himself, the enemy soldiers are falling over themselves trying to get away. I cannot see him well from here, even though the black smoke of his aura seems to have flared higher in the intervening minutes. The sun comes, says Jacquard. Not soon enough, says Kurue. At the center of the army there is a sound. No, not a sound, a vibration like a pulse, except that it shakes the whole earth. And then a black star blazes to life at the army's heart. I can think of no other words to describe it. It is a sphere of darkness so concentrated that it glows, so heavy with power that the earth groans and sags beneath it. A pit forms, radiating deep cracks. The enemy fall inward. I cannot hear their screams because the black star sucks in the sound. It sucks in their bodies. It sucks in everything. The earth shakes so violently that I fall to my hands and knees. There is a hollow, rushing roar all around me. I look up to see the very air is visible as it flies past, sucked down into the pit and the ravening horror that Nahadoth has become. Kurue and the others are around me, murmuring in their tongue to command the winds and whatever other terrible forces their father has unleashed. Because of that, we are safe, enclosed in a bubble of calm, but nothing else is. Above us, the very clouds have bent, funneling down into the star. The enemy army is gone. All that remains is the land we stand on, and the continent around it, and the planet beneath that. I finally realize my error. With his children protecting me, Nahadoth is free to devour it all. It takes all my will to overcome my own choking fear. Stop! I shout. Nahadoth, stop! The words are lost in the howling wind. 
He is bound by magic even more powerful than himself to obey my commands, but only if he can hear me. Perhaps he intended to drown me out, or perhaps he is simply lost in the glory of his own power, reveling in the chaos that is his nature. The pit beneath him erupts as he strikes molten rock. A tendril of fiery lava rises and swirls about the blackness before it, too, is swallowed. Tornado above, volcano below, and at the heart of it, the black star, growing ever larger. It is, in a terrible way, the most beautiful thing I have ever seen. At the end, we are saved by the Sky Father. The torn clouds reveal a light-streaked sky, and in the instant that I feel the stones beneath my hand shiver, ready to fly away, the sun peaks above the horizon. The black star vanishes. Something. Charred. Pitiful. Not enough of a human form to be called a body hovers in the star's place for a moment, then falls toward the lava below. Sia curses and streaks off on his yellow ball, breaking the bubble, but the bubble is no longer necessary. The air is hot and thin around me. It is hard to breathe. Already I can see storm clouds forming in the distance and rushing this way to fill the void. The nearby capital... Oh. Oh, no. I see the broken shells of a few buildings. The rest has been devoured. Part of the land has fallen into the churning red pit. The palace was on that land. My wife. My son. Jacquard looks at me. She is too much the soldier to show her contempt, though I know she feels it. Kurue helps me to my feet, and her face, too, is blank as she faces me. You have done this, her eyes say. I will think it over and over as I mourn. Sia has him, says Jacquard. It will take him years to recover. He had no business calling on that kind of power, Kure snaps. Not in human flesh. It doesn't matter, I say. And for once, I am right. The earth has not stopped shaking. Nahadoth has broken something deep within it. This was once beautiful country, the perfect seat for the capital of a global empire. Now it is ruined. Take me away, I whisper. Where? asks Jacquard. My home is gone. I almost say anywhere, but I am not a complete fool. These beings are not as volatile as Nahadoth, not as hateful, but neither are they my friends. One colossal folly for the day is enough. To Sinem, I say, the Amun homeland. We will rebuild there. So they carry me away. Behind me, over the next few days, the continent breaks apart and sinks into the sea. 6. Alliances Yena. My mother, murdered by jealousy, grasps my hand. I hold the hilt of a dagger that has been thrust into my own breast. Blood hotter than rage coats my hand. She leans close to kiss me. You're dead. You lie. I'm in whore, bone-white bitch. I will see all your lying kind swallowed into the darkest depths of myself. There was another consortium session the next morning. 
Apparently, this was the body's peak season in which they met every day for several weeks trying to resolve fiscal business before a lengthy winter break. Tavril arrived early that morning to wake me for the occasion, which took some doing. When I got up, my feet ached dully, as did the bruises I'd sustained running from Nahadoth the night before. I'd slept like death, exhausted emotionally and physically. Descartes attends nearly all the sessions, when his health permits, Tivril explained, while I dressed in the next room. The tailor had worked an overnight miracle, delivering me an entire rack of garments deemed appropriate for a woman of my station. He was very good. Instead of simply hemming the long Amun styles, he'd given me a selection of skirts and dresses that complemented my shorter frame. They were still far more decorative and less practical than I was used to, not to mention constricting in all the oddest places. I felt ridiculous. But it would not do for an Aramary heir to look like a savage, even if she was one. So I asked Tavril to convey my thanks for the tailor's efforts. Between the foreign garments and the stark black circle on my forehead, I barely recognized myself in the mirror. Rilad and Samina aren't required to attend, and they often don't, Tavril said. He'd come in to give me a shrewd once-over as I stood in the mirror. By his pleased nod, I evidently met with his approval. But everyone knows them. While you're an unknown quantity, Dakarta asks that you attend today in particular so that all can see his newest heir. Which meant that I had no choice. I sighed and nodded. I doubt most of the nobles will be pleased, I said. I was too minor to be worth their time before this whole mess. I imagine they'll resent having to be nice to me now. You're probably right, Tavril said, airily unconcerned. He crossed the room to my windows, gazing out at the view while I fussed with my unruly hair in a mirror. This was just nerves on my part. My hair never looked any better. Descartes doesn't waste his time with politics, Tavril continued. He considers the central family above such things, so naturally any nobles with a cause tend to approach Rilad or Samina, and now you. Lovely, I sighed, turning to him. I don't suppose there's any chance I might be disowned if I get myself involved in a scandal or two. Maybe then I could be banished to some backwater land up north. More likely you'd end up like my father, he said, shrugging. That's the usual way the family deals with embarrassments. Oh. For a moment I felt uneasy for reminding him of tragedy, but then I realized he didn't care. In any case, Dakarta seems determined to have you here. I imagine that if you cause enough trouble, he'll simply have you trussed up and delivered to the succession ceremony at the appropriate time. Though, for all I know, that's how the ceremony usually goes. That surprised me. You don't know? About the ceremony? Tavril shook his head. Only members of the central family are allowed to witness that. It hasn't been one for forty years, anyhow. Not since Descartes' ascension. I see. I put aside this information to consider later. All right, then. At the salon, are there any nobles I should beware of? He threw me a wry look, and I amended myself. Any in particular? You'll learn that before I will, he said. I imagine both your allies and your enemies will introduce themselves rather quickly. In fact, I suspect 
everything will happen rather quickly now. So, are you ready? I was not, and I wanted badly to ask him about his last comment. Things would happen even more quickly than they had been? Was that possible? But my questions would have to wait for later. I'm ready. So Tavril led me out of the apartment and through the white corridors. My apartment, like that of most Fullbloods, was on the topmost floor of Sky's main bulk, though I understood there were apartments and chambers within the spires as well. There was another, smaller vertical gate on this level, intended solely for full-blood use. Unlike the gate in Sky's forecourt, Tavril explained, this gate had more than one terminus. It apparently went to a number of offices in the city below. That way, the full-bloods could conduct family business without getting rained or snowed upon, or without being seen in public, if they so wished. No one else was about. Has my grandfather already gone down? I asked, stopping on the edge of the gate. Like the main gate and the palace lifts, it consisted of black tiles set into the floor in a mosaic that formed a god's sigil. This one resembled nothing so much as a huge spider-webbed crack in the floor an uncomfortably suggestive similarity that made me look away more quickly than usual. Probably, Tavril said. He likes to be early. Now, Lady Yena, remember, at the consortium you must not speak. The Aramary merely advise the nobles, and only Descartes has the right to address them. He doesn't do it often. Don't even speak to him while you're there. Your task is simply to observe and be observed. And introduced? Formally? No, that will happen later. But they'll notice you, never fear. Descartes won't need to say a word. And with that, he nodded, and I stepped onto the mosaic. One blurring, terrifying transition later, I found myself in a lovely marble room, standing atop a mosaic of inlaid black wood. Three consortium aides not so junior this time, or so surprised, stood waiting to greet and escort me. I followed them through a shadowed corridor and up a carpeted ramp to find myself in the Aramary private box. Descartes sat in his customary place. He did not turn as I arrived. Semina sat on his right side. She glanced around and smiled at me. I managed not to stop and glare, though it took a powerful effort on my part but I was very aware of the gathering nobles who milled around the salon floor as they waited for the overseer to begin the session. I saw more than a few glances directed toward the private box. They were watching. So I inclined my head to Samina in greeting, though I could not bring myself to return her smile. Two chairs stood unoccupied at Descartes' left. Assuming the nearest seat was for my yet unseen cousin Rilad, I moved to take the farther of the two. Then I caught Descartes' hand movement, he did not look at me, but he beckoned me closer. So I took the nearer seat instead, just in time as the overseer called the meeting to order. This time I paid more attention to what was going on. The meeting proceeded by region, beginning with the Cinemite nations. Each region had its representative, nobles appointed by the consortium to speak for themselves and their neighboring lands. The fairness of this representation varied widely, however and I could not make heads or tails of how it was organized. The city of Skye had its own representative, for example, yet all the High North Continent had only two. The latter did not surprise me. High North had never been highly regarded, but the former did, because no other single city had its own speaker, 
Sky wasn't that important. But then, as the session went on, I saw that I'd misunderstood. As I paid close attention to the edicts that Sky's representative put forth and supported, I realized that he spoke not just on behalf of Sky the city, but Sky the palace as well. Understandable, then, if unfair. Decarta already commanded the entire world. The consortium existed only to do the ugly, messy work of world governance, with which the era Mary couldn't be bothered. Everyone knew that. What was the point in being overrepresented on a governing body that was little more than a puppet show to begin with? But perhaps that was just the way of power. No such thing as too much. I found the High North representatives more interesting. I had never met either of them, though I recalled hearing complaints about them from the Dare Warriors Council. The first, Wohi Ubum, I think the latter name was a title of some sort, came from the largest nation on the continent, a sleepy agrarian land called Rue, which had been one of Dar's strongest allies before my parents' marriage. Since then, any correspondence that we sent her got returned unopened. She certainly didn't speak for my people. I noticed her glancing at me now and again as the session went on, and looking extremely uncomfortable as she did so. Had I been a more petty woman, I would have found her unease amusing. The other High Norther was Raz Onchi, a venerable elder who spoke for the easterly kingdoms and the nearer islands. She didn't say much, being well past the usual age of retirement and, as rumor had it, a bit senile. But she was one of the few nobles on the floor who stared directly at me for nearly the whole session. Her people were relatives of my own, with similar customs, and so I stared back as a show of respect, which seemed to please her. She nodded once, minutely, in a moment when Descartes' head was turned away. I didn't dare nod back with so many eyes watching every move I made, but I was intrigued by the gesture all the same. And then the session was over as the overseer rang the chime that closed the day's business. I tried not to exhale in relief because the whole thing had lasted four hours. I was hungry, in dire need of the ladies' room, and restless to be up and moving about. Still, I followed Descartes and Semina's lead and rose only when they rose. Walking out with the same unhurried pace, nodding politely when a whole phalanx of aides descended upon us in escort. Uncle, said Semina, as we walked back to the mosaic chamber, perhaps Cousin Yena would like to be shown around the salon. She can't have seen much of it before. As if anything would induce me to agree after that patronizing suggestion. No, thank you, I said, forcing a smile, though I would like to know where the ladies' room is. Oh, right this way, Lady Yena, said one of the aides, stepping aside and gesturing for me to lead the way. I paused, noting that Descartes continued onward with no indication that he'd heard either me or Semina. So that was how things went. I inclined my head to Semina, who'd also stopped. No need to wait on my account. As you like, she said, and turned gracefully to follow Descartes. I followed the aide down the longest hallway in the city, or so it felt, because now that I'd stood, my bladder had become most insistent about being emptied. When we at last reached the small chamber, the door was marked private in Cinemite, and I took it to mean for the highest-ranking salon guests only. 
It took all my willpower not to rush undignified into the very large room-like stall. My business completed, I was beginning the complicated process of reassembling my almond underclothes when I heard the outer door open. Samina, I thought, and stifled both annoyance and a hint of trepidation. Yet when I emerged from the stall, I was surprised to see Ra's Onchi beside the sinks obviously waiting for me. For a moment, I considered letting my confusion show, then decided against it. I inclined my head instead and said in Nerva, the common tongue of the North long before the Aramary had imposed cinnamite on the world. Good afternoon to you, Auntie. She smiled, flashing a mouth that was nearly toothless. Her voice lacked for nothing, though, when she spoke. And to you, she said in the same language, though I'm no auntie of yours, you're Aramary, and I am nothing. I flinched before I could stop myself. What does one say to something like that? What did Aramary say? I didn't want to know. To break the awkwardness, I moved past her and began to wash my hands. She watched me in the mirror. You don't look much like your mother. I frowned up at her. What was she about? So I've been told. We were ordered not to speak to her or your people, she said quietly. Woe he and I and woe his predecessor. The words came from the consortium overseer, but the sentiment, she smiled. Who knows? I just thought you might want to know. This was rapidly beginning to feel like an entirely different conversation. I rinsed my hands, picked up a towel, and turned to her. Have you got something to say to me, old aunt? Raj shrugged and turned to head for the door. As she turned, a necklace that she wore caught the light. It had an odd sort of pendant, like a tiny gold tree nut or cherry stone. I hadn't noticed it before because it was half hidden on a chain that dipped below her neckline. A link of chain had caught on her clothing, though, pulling the pendant up into view. I found myself staring at it rather than her. I have nothing to tell you that you don't already know, she said as she walked away. If you're Aramary, that is. I scowled after her, and if I'm not? She paused at the door and turned back to me, giving me a very shrewd look. Unthinkingly, I straightened, so that she would think better of me. Such was her presence. If you're not, Aramary, she said after a moment, then we'll speak again. With that, she left. I went back to Sky alone, feeling more out of place than ever. I had been given three nations to oversee, as Tavril reminded me that afternoon, when he came to continue my hurried education in Aramary life. Each of the three lands was bigger than my dar. Each also had its own perfectly competent rulers, which meant that I had very little to do with regard to their management. They paid me a regular stipend for the privilege of my oversight which they probably resented deeply, and which instantly made me wealthier than I'd ever been. I was given another magic thing, a silvery orb that would, on command, show me the face of any person I requested. If I tapped the orb a certain way, they would see my face, hovering in the air like some sort of decapitated spirit. I had been the recipient of such messages before. It was how I'd gotten the invitation from Grandfather Descartes and I found them unnerving. Still, 
This would allow me to communicate with my land's rulers whenever I wished. I'd like to arrange a meeting with my lord cousin Rilad as soon as possible, I said after Tavril finished showing me how to use the orb. I don't know if he'll be any friendlier than Samina, but I take heart in the fact that he hasn't tried to kill me yet. Wait, Tavril muttered. Not promising. Still, I had a half-formed strategy in my head, and I wanted to pursue it. The problem was that I did not know the rules of this Aramary game of inheritance. How did one win when Descartes himself would not choose? Rilad knew the answer to that question. But would he share it with me? Especially when I had nothing to offer in return. Tender the invitation anyhow, please, I said. In the meantime, it might be wise for me to meet with others in the palace who are influential. Who would you suggest? Tavril considered for a moment, then spread his hands. You've already met everyone here who matters, except Rilad. I stared at him. That can't be true. He smiled without humor. Sky is both very large and very small, Lady Yena. There are other full-bloods, yes, but most of them waste their hours indulging in all sorts of whims. He kept his face neutral, and I remembered the silver chain and collar Samina had put on Nahadoth. Her perversity did not surprise me, for I had heard rumors of far worse within Sky's walls. What astounded me was that she dared play such games with that monster. The few full-bloods and half-bloods and quarters who bother to do any legitimate work are often away from the palace, Tavril continued, overseeing the family's business interests. Most of them have no hope of winning Descartes' favor. He made that clear when he named his brother's children potential heirs rather than any of them. The ones who stay are the courtiers, pedants, and sycophants for the most part, with impressive-sounding titles and no real power. Descartes despises them, so you'd do better to avoid them altogether. Beyond that, there are only servants. I glanced at him. Some servants can be useful to know. He smiled unselfconsciously. As I said, Lady Ada, you've already met everyone who matters though I'm happy to arrange meetings for you with anyone you like. I stretched, still stiff after the long hours of sitting at the salon. As I did so, one of my bruises twinged, reminding me that I had more than earthly problems to worry about. Thank you for saving my life, I said. Tavril chuckled with a hint of irony, though he looked pleased. Well, as you suggested, it could be useful to have influence in certain quarters. I inclined my head to acknowledge the dead. If I have the power to help you in any way, please ask. As you like, Lady Yena. Yena. He hesitated. Cousin, <laughs> he said instead, and smiled at me over his shoulder as he left my apartment. He really was a superb diplomat. I suppose that was a necessity for someone in his position. I went from the sitting room into my bedroom and stopped. I thought he'd never leave, said Sia, grinning from the middle of my bed. I took a deep breath slowly. Good afternoon, Lord Sia. He pouted, flopping forward onto his belly and regarding me from his folded arms. You're not happy to see me. I'm wondering what I've done to deserve such attention from a god of games and tricks. I'm not a god, remember, he scowled. Just a weapon. That word was more fitting than you know, Yena, and how it burns these Aramary to hear it.
No wonder they call you a barbarian. I sat in the reading chair beside the bed. My mother often told me I was too blunt, I said. Why are you here? Do I need a reason? Maybe I just like being around you. I would be honored if that were true, I said. He laughed, high and carefree. It is true, Yena, whether you believe me or not. He got up then and began jumping on the bed. I wondered fleetingly whether anyone had ever tried to spank him. But? I was sure there was a but. He stopped after his third jump and glanced at me over his shoulder. His grin, sly. But it's not the only reason I came. The others sent me. For what reason? He hopped down from the bed and came over to my chair, putting his hands on my knees and leaning over me. He was still grinning, but again, there was that indefinable something in his smile that was not childlike. Not at all. Relad isn't going to ally with you. My stomach clenched in unease. Had he been in here all along listening to my conversation with Tavril? Or was my strategy for survival just so painfully obvious? You know this? He shrugged. Why would he? You're useless to him. He has his hands full dealing with Samina and can't afford distractions. The time of the succession, I mean, is too close. I had suspected that as well. That was almost surely why they'd brought me here. It was probably why the family kept a scrivener in-house, to ensure that Descartes didn't die off schedule. It might even have been the reason for my mother's murder after twenty years of freedom. Descartes didn't have much time left to tie up loose ends. Abruptly, Sia climbed into the chair with me, straddling my lap, knees on either side of my hips. I flinched in surprise, and again when he flopped against me, resting his head on my shoulder. What are you... Please, Yena, he whispered. I felt his hands fist in the cloth of my jacket, at my sides. The gesture was so much that of a child seeking comfort that I could not help it. The stiffness went out of me. He sighed and snuggled closer, reveling in my tacit welcome. Just let me do this a moment. So I sat still, wondering many things. I thought he had fallen asleep when he finally spoke. Kurue, my sister Kurue, our leader inasmuch as we have one, invites you to meet. Why? You seek allies. I pushed at him. He sat back on my knees. What are you saying? Are you offering yourselves? Maybe. The sly look was back. You have to meet with us to find out. I narrowed my eyes in what I hoped was an intimidating look. Why? As you said, I'm useless. What would you gain from a line with me? You have something very important, he said, serious now. Something we could force you to give us, but we don't want to do that. We are not Aramary. You have proven yourself worthy of respect, and so we will ask you to give that something to us willingly. I did not ask what they wanted. It was their bargaining chip. They would tell me if I met with them. I was rabidly curious, though, and excited, because he was right. The Enifada would make powerful, knowledgeable allies, even hobbled as they were. But I dared not reveal my eagerness. Sia was nowhere near as childish or as neutral as he pretended to be. 
I will consider your request for a meeting, I said in my most dignified voice. Please convey to the Lady Kurue that I will give you a response in no more than three days. Sia laughed and jumped off me, returning to the bed. He curled up in the middle of it and grinned at me. Kurue's going to hate you. <laughs> She thought you'd jump at the chance, and here you are keeping her waiting. An alliance made in fear or haste will not last, I said. I need a better understanding of my position before I do anything that will strengthen or weaken it. The Enafada must realize that. I do, he said, but Kurue is wise and I'm not. She does what's smart. I do what's fun. He shrugged, then yawned. Can I sleep here sometimes with you? I opened my mouth and caught myself. He played innocent so well that I'd almost said yes automatically. I'm not sure that would be proper, I said at last. You are very much older than me, and yet clearly underage. It would be a scandal either way. His eyebrows flew up almost into his hairline. Then he burst out laughing, rolling onto his back and holding his middle. He laughed for a long time. Eventually, a bit annoyed, I got up and went to the door to summon a servant and order lunch. I ordered two meals out of politeness, though I had no idea what or whether gods ate. When I turned, Sia had finally stopped laughing. He sat on the edge of the bed, watching me, thoughtful. I could be older, he said softly. If you'd rather have me older, I mean, I don't have to be a child. I stared at him and did not know whether to feel pity, nausea, or both at once. I want you to be what you are, I said. His expression grew solemn. That is impossible. Not while I'm in this prison. He touched his chest. Do... I did not want to call them my family. Do others ask you to be older? He smiled. It was, most horribly, very much a child smile. Younger, usually. Nausea won. I put a hand to my mouth and turned away. Never mind what Roz Onchi thought. I would never call myself Aramary. Never. He sighed and came over, wrapping arms around me from behind and resting his head on my shoulder. I did not understand his constant need to touch me. I didn't mind, but it made me wonder who he cuddled when I was not around. I wondered what price they demanded of him in exchange. I was ancient when your kind first began to speak and use fire, Yena. These petty torments are nothing to me. That's beside the point, I said. You're still... I groped for words. Human might be taken as an insult. He shook his head. Only Enifa's death hurts me, and that was no mortal's doing. In that moment, there was a deep, basso shudder throughout the palace. My skin prickled. In the bathroom, something rattled for an instant, then went still. Sunset, Sia said. He sounded pleased as he straightened and went to one of my windows. The western sky was layered clouds, spectrum painted. My father returns... Where had he gone, I wondered, though I was distracted by another thought. The monster of my nightmares, the beast who had hunted me through walls, was father to Sia. He tried to kill you yesterday, I said. 
Sia shook his head dismissively, then clapped his hands, making me jump. N. Naya Sawama Hikak. It was gibberish, spoken in a sing-song lilt, and for an instant, while the sound lingered, my perception changed. I became aware of the faint echoes of each syllable from the room's walls, overlapping and blending. I noticed the way the air felt as the sounds rippled through it, along my floor and to the walls, through the walls to the support column that held up sky, down that column to the earth. And the sound was carried along as the earth rolled over like a sleepy child, as we hurtled around the sun through the cycle of seasons, and the stars around us did a graceful cartwheel turn. I blinked, momentarily surprised to find myself still in the room. But then I understood. The earliest decades of the Scrivener's arts history were littered with its founders' deaths until they'd restricted themselves to the written form of the language. It amazed me now that they even tried. A tongue whose meaning depended upon not only syntax and pronunciation and tone, but also one's position in the universe at any given moment. How could they even have imagined mastering that? It was beyond any mortal. Sia's yellow ball appeared out of nowhere and bounced into his hands. Go and see, then find me, he commanded, and threw the ball away. It bounced against a nearby wall, then vanished. I'll deliver your message to Kurue, he said, heading toward the wall beside my bed. Consider our offer, Yena, but do it quickly, will you? Time passes so swiftly with your kind. Dakota will be dead before you know it. He spoke to the wall and it opened before him, revealing another narrow dead space. The last thing I saw was his grin as it closed behind him.